Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm joined by Desiree Lucchese, who's the Ethics and Impact Manager at UEthical. I'd say probably you're the most prolific person I've seen on LinkedIn of, of late, <laughs> um, with endless uh, posts about all sorts of discussions on geopolitics, stakeholder capitalism, environmental uh, discussions, social discussions. I guess I, I think we should probably kick off as to what got you so enthused about this whole space. Hello, Alex, and thank you for having me here today. Uh, yes, I'm an avid reader indeed. Um, so I'm a very curious person and I got into responsible investment precisely because of the, the variety of issues and expertise that you need to have to be able to be a proficient, if not excellent, um, you know, responsible investor. I'm curious when you say that because one of the biggest challenges I think is to read so broadly and at the same time make sure you can distill the information that you read into actual decisions and how does that then influence what you do day to day? <laughs> it's a good question because, you know, it's all about discriminating against what is material to your portfolio, what, what's happening within the macro landscape and then really distilling it to, to make better informed decisions in your investment process. As you then think about that in terms of building decision-making process or an investment framework, I guess the d- biggest challenge then is trying to work out what is material and what's not, right? There's a lot of things that you, we can all worry about. At the same time, if you sit within a portfolio and you're making decisions about a portfolio, what are the, the characteristics of what you would define as being material? There are different levels of materiality, what investors to date have considered material and what today, because of the complexity and and really a flurry of issues, we are now starting to consider even more material. So there is a discussion in the ESG space about double materiality, what is material to the portfolio, to the sectors, industries and, and constituents of a portfolio or an index, and what is material in terms of how the portfolio might impact the real world world. So from a responsible investment um, lens, we need to discriminate against what are the values that we are upholding, what are the values of our clients. So what do we need to firstly exclude to meet those values? And then how do we integrate financially material ESG considerations that then help us um, identify opportunities while also mitigate downside risks to which our portfolio companies might be exposed to. It sounds relatively easy at this point in time, but when we are considering then sustainability materiality without conflating ESG investing and sustainability um, and sustainable investing per se, the picture becomes even more complex. So to date, we thought, okay, a company X might be performing a bit better on on its you know, packaging products, it might be lowering its, uh, its foot, footprint, carbon footprint in this regard. It might be trying to procure products from sustainable palm oil, palm oil uh, commodity traders. Um, 
But ultimately, <laughs> there was a very narrow and relative um, measure of sustainability. Today, in the face of, a, of an overt climate crisis, very urgent need to, uh, to keep the world within a climate safe status. Sustainability is a bit more than that. So the materiality is starting to, what the materiality and the risk materiality is starting to broaden and become even more challenging for investors to discern. I've got to keep asking the, the question around an investment portfolio as you think about the traditional 60-40 portfolio with an equity bonds and then sort of going into the various verticals within the portfolio. How difficult is is it to take a full portfolio in the old style, I guess, thinking of a mean variance framework to start embedding sustainability? We, yeah, it is, it is challenging, but there are so many new tools and framework of analysis that investors can already use and integrate. So firstly, we are starting to, to tread into uh, uncharted territory, a world of uncertainty. And capital markets are blind to what we could define radical uncertainty. So the the, the existing risk prob probability um, um, dispersion that we use to, uh, to basically put a price on risk and then try to assess returns does no longer work in this world of high uncertainty. So there is a Nobel laureate, um, 1981, Robert Lucas, who said, in circumstances of high uncertainty, economic thinking has no value. So what does that mean in practice? That we have to be thinking of the world today, the world in 2021, with new you know, models. We have to start shifting the model. So there are ways that investment teams can, can start integrating new thinking, looking at new frameworks, new tools to assess portfolio risk exposures, and then we all have to challenge each other and start building new expertise, have a bit more doubt and a bit more curiosity about the possibilities. So as we think then, I guess, about the, the possibilities of, of change, for example, maybe you know, for a fund, is it best for them to start thinking about equities, for example, and then really maybe thinking about it more from a bottom-up perspective and understanding their their underlying businesses that they're investing in and understanding the sustainability impact that these companies have. Is, is that the approach that we should be doing or should it really be a top-down approach as we think about the impact from sustainability across the whole equities framework? Oh, well, all roads lead to Rome, as the old saying goes, and there is no one, one road to, to a solution. So there, are, there can be different styles. So, for example, we use a, a top-down approach which is an exclusionary approach, and then we, we, we integrate, you know, ESG risks and impact, you know, lenses or in, impact, uh, you know, slants to the portfolio to, to then have a bottom-up analysis. So equities have exposures, but also debt. So what it takes is a broader understanding of risk. So there is, uh, first of all, an identification of what could be a macro-level compounding, compounding source of risk that could in, you know, then propagate across different stocks and securities, and then starting to basically identify and narrow it down within the time frame of your investment style. So I guess the, the question then becomes, you know, how do you think about pricing systemic risk, right? Because that's one of the things that you're trying to, to address and try to at least look out for things that will affect you. 
But do you feel comfortable enough that you can identify companies that aren't susceptible to systemic risks? Some systemic risks can be diversified against. And, and that's a hard truth for, for investment analysts. So what we can identify is the way those correlations might reverberate across different portfolios and different investment strategies. So a high-risk you know, sector is by itself, by definition, probably something you might want to steer away from. At the same time, you can try and, and address who might be the winners within the high-risk sector, and, and you can identify, you know, the board, the man, you know, the board oversight that the company might have, the managerial capability, and and the timeframes through which they apply their strategies. First of all, do they have a long-term strategy in the first place? And then, you know, when you're looking at shareholder value. If you're considering shareholder value as, a, as an inherently forward outlooking measure, can that company be prepared to, to sudden and chronic shocks over the next 5, 10, 20 years? Ultimately, it is the time frame of your you know, investment style that determines to what extent you are prepared to account for those levels of risks and those different levels of materiality. Then the question becomes, if you think about shareholder value, a lot of shareholder value is to do with the business, its ability to grow its earnings, and ultimately its valuation that comes from it. How much do you feel that monetary policy and fiscal policy that we're seeing around the world today being very accommodative is actually almost hiding some of these broader systemic risks? I will not claim, not prepared to be uh, a monetary policy specialist. Of course, today we have to start thinking about new ways of understanding what we could do to transition our economies at large. So in that sense and in that regard, monetary policy could be considered a way of financing fiscal policy. We have started seeing the ECB um, and the Green New Deals trying to channel you know, new um, asset purchases towards new industries. At this point in time, it's probably a third of the actual, you know, um, recovery plans in in Europe. In in every market, there's going to be winners and losers. So this is about, you know, supporting the industries, the sectors and the transformation that we require. And it will require, you know, investment. It will require a cost. The point is, are we expecting those cash flows to come from a sustainable and, and resilient business? So can we distinguish between what is a robust investment strategy, a robust investment policy, and what could be resilient over the, the medium, long, and long term? Because I, I, I raised the question because of the, the concern that really the, the pathway that we've been moving down in terms of lower and lower monetary policy and quantitative easing and a lot of support for a number of shares is really a a market failure in a different way. We're allowing a lot of businesses to ultimately incinerate capital, and I'll say it pretty pretty openly, um, which I think has no reference to sustainability from the way that they've been allowed to operate and to be able to run. But from an investor point of view, it's difficult because the whole market seems to be supported by very easy uh, accommodative policy, whether it's through monetary policy or whether it's many of these fiscal programs that have come up off the back of COVID that are keeping a lot of businesses alive uh, and many of these businesses aren't sustainable. So you know, how do you then as an investor try to do distinguish where to invest at the same time 
where you've got all these market forces that are uh, being pushed upon you? By identifying what could be zombie companies and by looking at where the latest research reports and direction of travel is heading. So, for example, the, the latest IEA report, uh, zero, was it the net zero report by 2050, is telling us very clearly that by 2050, uh, we need to reduce you know, coal as a, as a percentage of total energy by 90%, oil by 75% of total demand, gas by 55%. So if we are to keep within a stable climate, which to me, <laughs> considering we need to protect a life supporting systems within, you know, within which the economy and returns operate, then it is critical. So that's the direction of travel. In, in Europe, for example, just this year, we have had a 95 billion allocation to green bonds. So, of course, everybody is, is seeking yield. Everybody in, in this space is trying to ramp up some you know, alternative assets and green bonds or social bonds or climate bonds allocations. But ultimately, it's about the, about the value of those structured products. So what are, what's the quality of the issues? What's the quality of the proceeds? What is the direction of travel on which they, they are embarking on? How much do you think the impact of this, this movement towards sustainability, green bonds, trying to reduce the impact on the environment actually has some pretty substantial impacts to the developing world, the emerging markets? You know, the, the Western world has been very... Uh, lucky, it's it's been able to run a, a hundred year process of of significant gains um, off the back of commodities to a large extent, um, and off the back of oil and so forth. How how can now the developing world, the emerging market um, part of the the economy, be able to sort of take their self up to to first world conditions uh, at the same time as this pushback against really being quite concerned about the environment? There has been. A renewal, a renewal of multilateralism. So we, we can see that you know there are developing countries and you know Western democracies you know pushing for you know greater allocations to sustainable and impact investments. So we know that from an impact side, the developing markets have had you know a lower benchmark, high, higher you know outcomes to be achieved, um, and there was a relatively easy. You know, I said relatively easy because the level of transparency in emerging markets has always been challenging. But in terms of today, where we sit, when we see the commitments that different countries, even the majority of Australian part trading partners have towards decarbonisation, we see that there is an increasing discussion of multilateralism and also approaching again the, the need to transfer technology transfer expertise. Ultimately, it will be a tug of war about what's the most effective and, you know, and least uh, cost-heavy project, what could be best designed uh, strategy within a certain you know, investment, investment outlook. Because I think the, the, the way a lot of people think about this is that you know, the Western world has done really well, but you've got this other part of the world being the, the third world, second world, um, and even China. You know, where does China sit in this? They have said 2060 they'll start to make some some significant gains, but no one really believes it, much like their uh, inflation and GDP numbers. It's really hard for, I think, a lot of people to, to look at the changes that are coming through, um, particularly as they see other countries almost shirking their duties. 
And there's a concern about whether we, even in Australia, there's a lot of discussion around the budget that was released uh, about a week or two ago now around the amount of benefits that we got from commodities, $30 billion being this surprise upside that we've been able to capture through the rise in the price of iron ore. I'm not sure how willing people are to sort of take losses, financial losses, because of changes through you know, environmental impacts that are coming through. And I think this is going to be the, the hardest thing. I don't think if you ask anybody, would they like to damage the environment? No one would actively raise their hand. I think that's pretty clear. But then the next challenge is, at what impact are you willing to take into your day-to-day living around the costs of living, the costs of feeding your family, the costs of living and buying a car and so forth? And I think this is one of the hardest challenges that we will have as we move through this process of sustainability. It's very easy to wave the flag and say, I'm going to do the right thing. But financially, how do you balance those things out is is really critical. Um, we need new thinking and we need smart thinking. So firstly, um, you know, we might say, well, yes, Western countries and Western democracies, uh, you know, are ahead of the game, but actually they're not necessarily ahead. I mean, there is a, a high degree of energy efficiency productivity that we need to raise. We, we don't have the EVs infrastructure in place. We don't have, you know, uh, a gas infrastructure that is, uh, you know, covering for methane leakage. So, it will be costly. So, but this is an opportunity for us to stimulate new job creation, new industries, you know, more resilient uh, sectors. So we might be thinking in Australia, oh, it's great, you know, we can have a gas transition. But the reality is that countries like Europe uh, will start, you know, play, putting in place carbon adjustment mechanisms for imports. There will be new tariffs to drive a protection of their markets. So if our products and services do not come comply with that great greater sustainability lens, a climate resilient type of investment or product, we, we won't be up there trading. So I know that it, it is all perceived like a cost, but I, I think at this point in time, the greatest cost is actually not thinking in new ways and not accounting for those upcoming costs. I like to refer to the grey rhino as a, as a great uh, analogy for where we are at. We think we are thinking that it would be costly, too costly now, but we have this massive, highly probable um, <laughs> uh, changes coming at us: new regulation, new technology, you know, climate risks to actual collateral assets. So the actual value of collateral assets might be impacted by a flood event in southern Asia. You know, we we have seen the fires in Australia, we know, you know, glaciers are collapsing and the infrastructure we have is not prepared for, you know, a two degree world, let alone a three or four degree, you know, world. So we've got high probability, high impactful events coming at us, charging. It's worse than an elephant in the room. These, these events are coming at us. The greatest cost is not acting now and starting having market dynamics, market forces doing their job, and governments on the other side, policymakers, investors doing their part on the other side. This is where the markets are, are a really funny place, right? Because ultimately you talk about market dynamics and helping the market do its thing. But if you think about a lot of what we purchase today, we, we buy a lot of items that are truly throwaway items. You can go to any hardware store and buy a drill for $29 that lasts maybe <laughs> three months and you just throw it away because you just buy another one. You know, Likewise, a TV. 
in the past you would buy a TV and that TV would last you 20 years. Now, if it lasts you three, you say, that's a fine. I only paid 500 or or $1,000 for it. That's fine. We're allowing this market environment to produce us products that are so cheap and so disposable. And yet we, so, we focus so much time and attention on sustainability in its impact with the you know, the climate and ultimately trying to limit the change in temperature to two degrees, for example. But it seems like we're really missing the easier things up front, which is around the highly consumeristic society that we live in and the amount of companies that we support when they keep having better and better results based on consumerism. Whether it's the companies like JB Hi-Fi, whether it's Coca-Cola, they're making huge amounts of product that then ultimately gets thrown away. Uh, It's disposable. And so it seems as though a lot of these large companies are very able to divert attention and start focusing on, oh, we're doing the right thing about renewable energy. But if I pick on someone like Apple, you you can't change anything in these computers anymore. It's just basically a throwaway item, likewise their phones. And there's no pressure from any of the investors to tell them how can we do things better. It's great that you're raising this point because in a recent study uh, about the sustainable development goals and how you know these United Nations 17 sustainable development goals are correlated, the, it appears that the ones that are most important are SDG 12 about reducing consumption and production, and uh, sorry, actually responsible consumption and production, and reducing inequality. um, SDG 10. So it makes sense to think that if we are going to have sustainability embedded in our investment decision making, we need to account for how we're transforming the very production processes and services that we provide. And here we can learn significantly from sustainability practice. So on the one hand, we have ESG factors, so for investors who use financially material investment signals, so ESG can provide some elements of what would be a sustainable company within its specific services and products. And this could be about responsible sourcing, about toxic emissions and waste, about the dematerialization. And then so how the company integrates closed loops, life cycle analysis, and that really total cost of ownership in its product design and and production. So again, linking it back to the IEA uh, and the latest uh, net zero by 2050 report, what we need is this dematerialization and really a dramatic uh, gain in efficiencies across energy generation and industrial processes. So we can, as investors and investment analysts, integrate considerations that are a bit more forward-oriented. And on the other hand, we can learn from sustainability metrics, which are a bit different. We need to distinguish between what is an ESG signal and what's a sustainability way of looking at the world. So when we are thinking of sustainability, we are thinking about smart design, modularity, closed loops, intergenerational equity. There is also the, the social justice element because with sustainability, we're really thinking 10, 20, 50 years, up to 100 years down the line. Ultimately, it's about doing things smartly and and conscientiously because, you know, we have realized that even charities can't handle 
all the, you know, charitable, fashionable items that are being given to them. And we can't, the oceans can't handle all these microplastics and microfibers fibers that get washed through, um, you know, our, you know, washing machines and discharged into the oceans. And, and in Australia, if you're considering, for example, plastic products, we have the highest use of, uh, of plastics per capita. So we have to start thinking a bit more systemically and we need to start thinking, where are our levers of influence? For example, we do not necessarily have plastic producers or petrochemical producers in our portfolio because we are fully divested from fossil fuels for clear ethical and environmental reasons. But how can we influence? So we have decided, okay, let's go through the retailers. Let's go through some packaging manufacturers. You can apply influence by having those discussions with those investee companies at the different levels of, you know, of the value chain. How much do you think that the influence through investors is sufficient enough or should it really be through almost regulation and policy of government? There are many barriers that we are facing as individuals, as investors and as policymakers. So on the one hand, we have cognition biases, we have, um, you know, variability through the way we analyze portfolios. And on the other hand, we have leadership voids. We have the need for, for policymakers to create the right incentives and incentive structures so that investors have some guarantee or some confidence in further investing in a market. So I think some recent pundits have done an assessment of all the uh, large investors' initiatives across the board that might impact systemic risk that manifests in the capital markets through the systematic risk. And there are over 100 initiatives. So investors can do a lot within the investment teams to start uh, influencing at different levels. Maybe it's an issuer, maybe it is um, the, the market maker, or maybe it's the investee company we, we, you know, with which we are just having an active engagement strategy uh, through proxy voting, through participating at AGMs and having really a voice and a position to raise an issue. And on the other hand, not really um, being quiet uh, with policymakers. I think we've seen a ramping up, a significant ramping up of advocacy of investors really collaborating across uh, industry, well, industry initiatives with peers to try and also, you know, shift the discourse that is happening at the policymaking level. Do you see any threats from this discourse in terms of businesses that then choose to almost go to the dark zone? There, you almost get a, a a terminology of dark capital where things are moving to the private markets. We've seen some anecdotal evidence, particularly in the fossil fuel space, where there's been a lot of divestiture from some of the very large Exxons and, and BP and so forth, but they're being picked up by private enterprise, um, which doesn't have the disclosures that you do have on public markets. Well, this still matters. I mean, the most diversified investors and the largest you know, asset owners in the world will still have allocations to PE and venture capital. So the, the movement of transparency and accountability is actually now entering the private equity space. There is no way to hide, nowhere to hide. And, um, and ultimately, yes, there is a short-term return and there is still a lot of money to be made from fossil fuels. The reality is retail investors, wholesale investors that will see through the facade. It's no longer the time to, to hide behind short-term smoke screens. 
you know, the impact of investments are becoming more and more blatant. I think you're a lot more positive than I am. I, I look to <laughs> I look to Bitcoiners and these crypto assets absolute run up and now run down as being a really interesting observation in people's mentality. Despite everyone knowing the amount of energy costs that go in alongside these crypto assets, people choose to buy it. They're, everyone wants to get rich. Everyone uh, wants to to make money, right? And so this is one of the biggest dangers. It's people understand the risks. They understand the systemic risks. They understand the climate risks. And at the same time, there's this urge to get to get rich. And you know that comes back to my other question around you know for investors, you've got benchmarks you've got to hit, whether it's quarterly, semi annually, annually. We're all peer peer aware, and we're all benchmarked. So you know, how do you think about this? this uh, dichotomy that we face? Oh, I'm happy you call me an optimist because I would just call myself a realist, um, you know, hoping that responsible investors can really shift the dial. So, um, yes, I'm, I'm not an optimist, but thank you for that. So we need to distinguish between Bitcoins and crypto assets. And, yes, I think the elephant in the room with Bitcoin was always energy consumption. And I think now... I think Bitcoin has got the energy consumption of the Netherlands. So we're talking about one currency, one asset having the consumption of an entire country. So so whether we want to see that or not, uh, it goes down to cognitive um, limitations that we have as individuals or investors. As for the rally that I've also tragically seen um, across crypto assets, Many crypto assets do not necessarily have that level of consumption and there are greater efficiencies that are built in. But ultimately, at this point in time, it remains a speculative asset that investors have to take at their own risk. So um, so back to the benchmarks. How do we assess performance? So as a short-term investors or as a general investor, probably we will always refer to market cap benchmarks. But again, I'm a responsible investment um, analyst, a professional. So I am seeing across uh, the industry, across the interest there is, for example, in ESG ETFs, in active investment strategies, that we need to consider a different level of performance. And we are starting to to find ways to to account for it. There are ESG benchmarks, for example. So when I used to work um, uh, at MSCI ESG Research, we used to run loads of portfolio analytics, and I used to run them for a broad range of uh, superannuation insurance uh, companies, um, all clients. And we always used um, a a secondary benchmark, preferably an ESG or, or low carbon benchmark, because as investors, if we are saying we are trying to be driving impact or lower portfolio you know, carbon footprint, then it wouldn't make sense that we compare it against the market cap benchmark in the first place. We could argue, oh, you know, is a benchmark representative of the economy, in, the economies in which we are investing in the first place? And I won't go, but I won't go into that. What, what I'm concerned about as a, as a responsible and ethical investor is I'm, am I comparing my performance to the type of world where I'm trying to steer to? So if I'm comparing myself to the market cap benchmark, then I wouldn't be achieving that goal. I would be failing to address the performance. And to make it this a bit broader, if we consider you know, GDP growth between 1992 and 2014, GDP globally has, has increased 60%. 
while the, the decline of natural resources has been going down at the rate of 40%. So really, what are we measuring performance against? I mean, if we, if we consider the economy a subsidiary of the environment, of nature, if we consider the businesses and portfolios have got not just impacts, whether to them or to the world, but also dependencies, Try and run a business without water. Try to run a business without a critical component to its supply chain, whether it is disrupted by a flood event or, or a fire or, or just a lack of talent. So we need to start thinking a performance through a lens of impact, dependencies and value. Is that company or is that portfolio creating value for a diversity of stakeholders, but also for a longer you know, outlook? Do you really believe that investors have that long-term outlook? You know, I think that's one of the, the hardest challenges in terms of understanding what they would like, you know, the, the utopia that they hope for versus their, their willingness to build wealth and, and provide a retirement for themselves, I think is one of the real challenges that people have when they, they put money aside. They, it's, it's again, it's that balance that they need to have in terms of, can I make sure I've got enough wealth for my retirement vis-a-vis what can I do to help the environment? It, it, it's a challenging decision. That's right. And you mentioned it earlier, you know, that people are or individuals are driven by the profit motive and having the returns now. I can't, you know, answer on behalf of a very short-term investors. We are not a hedge fund, for example. So, and I understand, and of course, uh, fixed income, you know, investors would have very, you know, short timeframes. But ultimately, if we are, you know, into, um, into the investment space for the medium to long term, each risk that we are now starting to see as a compounding risk as well will be material to that portfolio. So we, we tend to, to be using a time frame of three to five years, but actually most of our investee companies are held for much longer. So in that sense, we need to account for those risks. And as for asset owners, of course, you know, it is the fiduciary duty to perform well so that there is a material financial return for beneficiaries to have to fall on to, to really retire. At the same time, most pension funds are are now starting to realize that we need to ensure that we have a world in which we can retire in the first place. So that, that notion of risk makes sense to both returns and to sustainability uh, themes that might be spanning across different, um, you know, E and S and G aspects of a portfolio, whether fully accounted for or not. Because, for example, most of the, um, you know, natural capital considerations, biodiversity considerations or climate risk considerations are not necessarily yet integrated into the average ESG uh, investment uh, approach. This is where the, the lens of fiduciary duty gets very, very blurred because at what point is it impact investing where the returns are pretty much you know close to cash plus something versus being a fiduciary and your returns or you're being benchmarked against a market return or you know um, a risk-free plus an equity risk premium, right? I, I think I think there's quite a distinction there as to what is the role of a fiduciary running a pension fund versus a, maybe an impact fund, which, which is looking to generate the most amount of income, impact possible. Some impact investment um, you know, models are specific to impact 
and, uh, and, and a certain degree of impact projects that might make up a portfolio. But all investment can be investment with impact. So again, it's about the lens through which you pick your universe, so you define your universe and pick the stocks within the universe. So in that sense, every listed or fixed income investor can be an investor with impact. Again, it's about accounting for those you know, costs or risks that are usually not overt in, uh, in investment uh, analysis. And having the extra stretch, you know, in <laughs> intellectual curiosity, research, um, you know, uh, team skills to, to really go beyond what is considered mainstream um, uh, investment analysis. So, yes, uh, you know, fiduciary, um, fiduciaries have the responsibility for relative, you know, market returns. At the same time, there is a, a broader impact that we can all have through our investment strategies. All and right. the engagement that goes with them. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Disray. It's been great. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.